As far as we can tell from the stories of the Buddha's life, a bhikkhu, a man called Ananda, was the Buddhist closest and most loyal student and disciple who traveled with the Buddha everywhere, who listened to the teachings over and over again, who was always by the Buddha's side. And Ananda, in a way, when you, when you read the, the discourses, Ananda was not only a person, he was something of an archetype, like Ananda is every man and every woman, because Ananda invariably was the one who didn't quite get it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you could imagine the sort of sense of frustration and humiliation of Ananda as he would travel around with the Buddha. And as the stories go, you know, the Buddha would give a discourse and all of these people would suddenly become enlightened and awakened and Ananda would be left scratching his head. <laughs> And, and afterwards, he would come to the Buddha and he would, he would ask these questions, you know. Are you teaching there's no self? And the Buddha would say, not so, Ananda, not so. And then Ananda would ask, are you teaching there is a self? And the Buddha would say, not so, Ananda, not so, Ananda. In this sort of sorrowful way, and it kind of went on, it goes on and on and on. It's, it's a story that repeats itself over and over and over in Ananda's story. Um, it does have a, a happy ending, by the way. <laughs> there, there does come a point when Ananda gets it, you know. Um, in the time of the Buddha, it was very much an oral tradition, the teaching. You know, so, you know, many of the teachings were repeated over and over again. And the reason for that was not only because there wasn't a sort of written way of doing this, but in a way to kind of naturalize the teachings in people's hearts and minds. So I make no apology for tonight. And you may think that we have milked this subject of anatta dry, but not so, Ananda, not so. <laughs> Dogen, who is a great, great teacher, he said, to study the way is to study the self. To study oneself is to forget oneself. To forget oneself is to be awakened by all things. To be awakened by all things is to let body and mind of self and others fall away. Even the traces of awakening come to an end, and this traceless awakening continues endlessly. <clears throat> now, as you've had uh, quite a bit of opportunity so far this week to understand we put a lot of emphasis upon anatta. And it is true that if you listen to enough Dharma teachings, if you read enough, if you practice for long enough on this path, there are two words that you will inevitably encounter. One is anatta and the other is shunyata. And anatta is very much as Rodney has really mentioned. <laughs> I mean, anatta is very much translated as non-self. And shunyata is often translated as emptiness, but it is really really an extension in a way of non-self, the non-self of all things, that all things are empty of independent self-existence. So it's not just, shunyata is not just speaking, well, anatta is very much speaking about a kind of inner, inner understanding, inner, inner realization, and shunyata is really very much the extension of that. Now, I find that many people have really quite an emotional reaction to these words, and I've seen that over these days. 
Some people tell me when they hear the teachings of non-self or anatta or shunyata that they just kind of stop listening, that they tune out. They, they have this feeling that this is a complex, some, such a complex teaching that it's unfathomable, unfathomable and beyond their understanding. Some people tell me they really feel like this has really nothing, very little to do with them. You know, like they came on retreat just to get a little calmer. And, and then suddenly there's this teaching about non-self, you know, and they were just trying to get a little stress-free and relaxed. And, and even that feels hard enough, never mind all this other stuff. Sometimes people tell me they have sort of a kind of aversive reaction to these teachings of non-self and emptiness because they're heard as being nihilistic or nihilistic. They're heard as being prescriptions for passivity or surrender of direction or surrender of relatedness. And some people tell me that they hear these teachings in a kind of an accusatory way, as a kind of judgment when their personal reality feels to be one where they feel to be quite, quite locked in a world of self. Yet I, I think it, it's very important to acknowledge that the Buddha didn't reserve these teachings for advanced students or, you know, the kind of elite meditators. This was the second discourse that the Buddha gave, the teaching of non-self and emptiness. It was the second discourse he gave. And when new students would turn up for the first time, you know, he would launch into this. Because, as Rodney has mentioned, the Buddha really did consider that the teaching and understanding of non-self and emptiness to be at the heart of a liberated mind. And that there is really no better way to bring about the end of despair and sorrow and suffering than to understand non-self. And rather than presenting non-self as something terribly complex, the Buddha spoke about emptiness and non-self as a very simple reality staring us in the face every moment of our day. Now, this teaching of non-self, of course, spans all Buddhist traditions, but it's not restricted to Buddhism, you know, as gather a group of scientists together and we will all nod our heads in agreement. Some people speak about almost an, enc an encounter, almost a collision with emptiness. I wanted to read you something from Dr. Oliver Sachs. Sachs. After breakfast, I wandered out. It was a particularly glorious September morning. Settled myself on a stone seat with a large view in all directions and filled and lit my pipe. This was a new, or at least an almost forgotten experience. I had never had the leisure to light a pipe before, or not, it seemed to me, for 14 years at least. Now suddenly, I had an immense sense of leisure, an unhurriedness, a freedom, I had almost forgotten, but which now it had returned seemed the most precious thing in life. There was an intense sense of stillness, peacefulness, joy, a pure delight in the now. Freed from drive or desire, I was intensely conscious of each leaf autumn-tinted on the ground, intensely conscious of the Eden around me. The world was motionless, everything concentrated, and in, in an intensity of sheer being. Now on this morning, as though on the first morning of creation, I felt like Adam, beholding a new world with wonder. I had not known or had forgotten that there could be such beauty, such completeness in every moment. I had no sense at all of moments, of the serial, only of the perfection and beauty of the timeless now. Dogen, again, said, Emptiness includes the sun, moon, stars, and planets, the great earth, mountains, and rivers, 
all trees and grasses, bad people and good people, bad things and good things, heaven and hell, they are all in the midst of emptiness. In one of the commentaries on the teaching, it said, mere suffering exists, no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. Nibbana is, but not the person who enters it. The path is, but no traveler on it is seen. The Buddha presents anatta, both as a teaching, an understanding, and a practice, and ultimately as a way of seeing, as the embodiment of a liberated heart. As a teaching, it is presented very simply. No thing can be found inwardly or outwardly or anywhere in the world that has an independent self-existence. As a practice, anatta is taught, saying, nothing that arises in body or mind should be regarded as mine, as belonging to me, or as who I am. Nothing in the world that arises should be regarded as me or mine or belonging to me. Now, this is a practice. It's not an experience. This is a practice. It is a practice that naturally follows on from the investigation of the teaching. And when, when instructing in this practice, the Buddha was asked the question, what does the liberated mind through emptiness, or how, does, how do we liberate the mind through the understanding of emptiness? And the Buddha answers, a monk or a nun, a practitioner, goes to the root of a tree, goes to an empty hut, and reflects, this is empty of self, or what belongs to self. And this is the liberation of heart through emptiness. And the Buddha went on to describe the understanding of emptiness as the abode or the home of the great and noble person. Now this practice of, 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 of anatta, the practice of emptiness, was for the Buddha, and I think it is for us, something of great immediacy. But it also has a direction. And its direction is not the erasure of self, but the dispelling of confusion and misery. The dispelling of the origins of suffering and torment. Now, personally, I think it is really very important for us to remember that this is the essence of the Buddhist teaching. Sometimes when the Buddha was asked about this, he said, you know, this teaching does not have virtue as its goal. This teaching does not have concentration as its goal. This teaching does not have knowledge as its goal. But as its goal, this teaching has the liberation of the, the unshakable liberation of the, of the heart. That this is the essence and the heartwood of this teaching and path. In meditation practice, you know, great experiences may or may not come to us. We may or may not get great concentration states. But you know what? All of this is so secondary. And what is really primary in the teaching, and I think primary and central in our own longing, is to bring about the end of torment and struggle by understanding its causes. And this is what opens the door to love, to compassion, to generosity, to kindness, and to the unshakable liberation, the deep transformation of our hearts through understanding non-self and emptiness. Dogen said, you must surely know emptiness is a perfect grass. This emptiness is bound to bloom like hundreds of grasses blooming. 
seeing a dazzling variety of the flowers of emptiness. We surmise an infinity, an infinity of the fruits of emptiness. We observe the bloom and fall of the flowers of emptiness and learn the spring and autumn of them. I think that we would probably agree that every single quality of heart that we most value, long for, and see as being noble, our capacity to reach out and touch the heart of another with compassion, our capacity to love, our capacity for empathy, When those qualities are present in our hearts, these are the moments when the sense of self and the sense of other are most quiet. The touches, the glimpses of peace, of stillness, the ability to embrace pain, all of these are the moments when our sense of self and other are most quiet. They arise from emptiness. They arise from non-self. The moments when we suffer the most, when we feel most disconnected, most estranged from others, the moments when we feel most gripped by fear or by ill will or by craving, that are the most difficult moments in our lives But if you look at them carefully, they're also the moments when the sense of I, the sense of me, and the sense of other is most pronounced, most solid, most outstanding. We could almost say that just as liberation is the bloom of emptiness, that suffering is the bloom of clinging and selfing. If we can see for ourselves that the most spacious, peaceful, the most connected moments of our lives are the moments when we are the least self-preoccupied, least self-absorbed, then it is really a good question to ask of ourselves, what is it that denies that longing? What is it that denies that, that spaciousness? What is it that locks us into self-preoccupation and absorption, places actually, you know, where we're really not that happy, places where we don't actually want to be. Now, I'd like to take just a moment to look at why, why it is that we might struggle so much with this teaching of non-self. Because for sure, if we struggle with the teaching, we will not practice non-self. And I have no doubt the primary reason we struggle with the concept, never mind the possible reality of non-self, it is because it is because it's a polar opposite of our felt experience. And as we are often embarrassed to admit it, but as Rodney said, we do actually pretty much see ourselves as the center of the universe. And this this idea of self is pretty much an optical illusion. Does anybody disagree with the fact that the Earth and all of us on it orbits the sun? Does anybody disagree with that? And yet, when you look, it looks like the sun is orbiting us, doesn't it? I mean, you see the sun rise over there and then seem to go around here and set over there. So it's kind of an optical illusion, isn't it? Because it looks like the sun is orbiting around us when actually we're orbiting around the sun. So the idea of self as being at the center of the universe is a little bit of an optical illusion like this. I mean, when you wake up in the morning, think about it, you know, sometimes like when I'm traveling a lot, you know, and, I, and I'm staying like in hotels, I wake up in the morning, I have no idea where I am. I have absolutely no idea where I am. 
And then I sort of turn on the light and I see sort of various landmarks in the room, you know. And gradually I can sort of feel my world come together. Oh, I'm in San Francisco, you know, and that means I'm doing this. And that means that this is what I have to do. It's a very interesting experience, that moment, because when I don't know where I am, I also don't know who I am. It's like I have no idea what I'm doing. It's just, it's, it's, but it's a very sort of peaceful, interesting space. But have you ever noticed when you wake up in the morning, it does kind of feel like your sense of self, of me, is just sort of waiting for you? Kind of like a familiar pair of shoes, you know, just sort of waiting for you to step into, waiting for your body and mind to kind of get into gear, and then I'm kind of, you know, moving into my plans and my wants and my fantasies and my tasks and my nightmares. And you just feel like that, like you start the day, like the me arises and my whole world arises with it. It's kind of like the, the story of Nasruddin, the, the, the kind of Sufi teacher, you know, goes into the bank and try, wants to cash a check. And, and the cashier says, have you got any ID? And he says, have you got a mirror? And, and the cashier says, yes, and hands the mirror, looks at me and says, yep, that's me, all right, you know. It's, a, it's kind of like that sort of feeling, you know. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, that's me, all right. You know, here's my task, that's me, you know. Here's my preoccupations, that's me. Here's my landmarks, that's me. Now, it must be said that as the center of the universe, we do take everything very personally. You know, things happen to me, or I make things happen, or things belong to me. Those are kind of our territories. Um, and of course, alongside this, we have a very long and detailed story of who I am. Now, this sense of me, you know, surely it goes back as long as we can remember. Can you remember when there wasn't a me? Well, actually, it was about before you were two years old. It was, it was a time before you actually learned to conceptualize the world very well. But then suddenly I grew, you know, with my language and my concepts and my world, I grew. And so we have this very long and detailed story that goes back as long as we can remember of who I am. It's kind of this sort of sense of me as like our enduring companion. Also sometimes, I mean, sometimes we're happy with ourselves, but... A lot of times, kind of like our worst enemy, you know, creating endless cycles of anxiety and judgment and fear of isolation and disconnection and uh, all that other stuff, unworthiness and inadequacy. Just do bear in mind that none of this exists without me in the center. None of this exists without me in the center. These are all the landscape of myself, and then I can spend the whole of my life protecting and improving, asserting, concealing, or bettering myself. Being a self is a full-time job. You know, it's really a full-time job. Morning, the moment we open our eyes in the morning to the time we close our eyes at night, even in our dreams. Now, we could react to this sense of self with a certain sense of shame or judgment or blame, but you know what? That heaps self upon self. You know? And that's kind of, that tendency to do that is another offshoot of self-absorption. Or we could, as the Buddha suggested, investigate to be curious about this sense of self. Is it an idea? Is it a reality? Is it a noun? Is it a process? Is it there all the time? Is it only there some of the time? Is there an independent self? Is this who we are? When, the Buddha, when people came to the Buddha arguing the case about self, he never answered, there is a self or there is no self. But he instead encouraged this kind of investigation. And, and remember, you know, this is 2,600 years ago. So the, the, the kind of example that's often listed in the teaching is that the Buddha would take a cart, you know, he would take a cart, and he would encourage people to take the cart apart, you know, and to kind of spray it, splay it out in the ground, you know, and he would say, is the wheel the cart? And they'd say, no, the wheel is not the cart. And they, he'd say, is the shaft the cart? And he'd say, no, no, the shaft is not the cart. Is the wood the cart? And they would say, of course not, the wood's not the cart. 
And so you would say, well, where is the card? It's a concept superimposed in the mind. Now, we don't have any handy cards in here, but we could take something else, the chair. Now, clearly, there is a chair. It's not an illusion. There is a chair. The chair exists. If it was just an illusion, you would try and sit on it and you would sprawl on the floor. But we could take the chair very personally, couldn't we? I'd like a better chair. No, I don't like this kind of chair. You know, we all have other kinds of chairs here. Suppose you come into the hall and somebody's sitting on your chair. <laughs> you didn't think about it as your <laughs> chair necessarily until somebody else sat on it. And then it is really my chair. Uh, it has a conventional reality, but does it really have an independent self-existence? If we look a little bit underneath the concept and the appearance of the chair, we actually see it's not so. The chair is an ongoing story, isn't it? Hmm? If you look underneath the concept, you see the people who built the chair, you see the wood, you see the trees, you see the seeds that the trees grew from, in the growing of the seeds that made the chair, you see the sun, you see the rain. And, and this, is, this always amazes me, like the person who thought, had the thought to make a chair. I always find that amazing. You know, like people had these thoughts. Like I think about like glass. Somebody had a thought to make glass. So anyway, somebody had that thought originally. You know, somebody actually evolved this thought. And so what happens, what we see is that there's this stream of conditions that are, the beginning of those conditions is untraceable. Hmm? But there is this stream of conditions that all need to come together in a particular way for the chair to be. And in time, the chair will turn into something else. So when we speak about the emptiness of the chair, we are speaking about what is revealed when we probe beneath the surface or the appearance of anything. It is not a denial of the chair. It's not saying no chair. But it's probably more true to say that is a non-chair. Mm -hmm. What happens when we probe beneath this apparent solidity of things is that we can begin to open to the mystery and the depth and the interrelatedness of this fluid and changing life where nothing at all can be pinned down, can be fixed by name or by concept. An emptiness and the understanding of it encourages to let go of all our fixed ideas that we hold about ourselves, about others, about the world, and to open into this mystery, this fluidity of, of the world as it is. And we see that there is nothing in this world that is fixed, that is set, that is static apart from our view of it. And we even let that view, let the view of things being fixed, take its seat in this fluid, mysterious, changing life. But even that seat is also fluid. It's not the center. It's opening rather than closing. It's seeing anew rather than seeing, rather than filtering the world through um, through the world, uh, filtering the world through, through concepts, opinions, and views. It's truly a beginner's mind. Now, Nagarjuna, one of the great Indian teachers, he was a poet of emptiness. And he once wrote, wrote, the Buddhists say that emptiness is relinquishing opinions. And the knowers of emptiness are incurable. This is something that all scientists, all Buddhas, all yogis who walk this path, 
none of them will dispute the reality that nothing ever anywhere is solid or fixed. But isn't it interesting how we can have an agreement with that? You know, none of us would disagree with that. But we can be strangely reluctant to apply this same investigation to me, to I, to all that belongs to me. As much as we can sense the freedom of understanding and living in the light of emptiness, at the same time it can seem deeply unsettling when applied to ourselves. It can seem almost like an intolerable assault, an insult to our sense of identity, which, as difficult as it can be, that sense of identity, it can also offer a sense of safety and security. Now, clearly, there is a sense of self. Remember, this is not about nihilism. You know, there's a Zen poem that says, you know, before awakening, I chopped wood and carried water, you know. After awakening, I chopped wood and carried water. Hmm? So we're not talking about the annihilation of self. But awakening to understanding what it is. Okay, so it's very clear. What, is, what am I made of? My body my feelings, my experiences, my perceptions, my emotions, my intellect, my mind, and of course my name, my name, you know, the standard bearer of me. I mean, if you were sitting there and I, you, with your eyes closed and one of us suddenly shouted out, Sally, what are you doing? I mean, if your name was Sally, that would probably be the most awake moment in your life. You know, you would feel a sense of self emerging, you know? And you know how it is when you meet somebody and they've forgotten your name? You know, you're Jane and they call you Trudy. And you, know, you can feel a sense of affront, like, you know, like, come on here. You know, that's not who I am, you know. So, you know, the name carries this whole sense of history and identity and all the rest with it. Um, we hear these competing voices, I think, almost within ourselves. You know, this longing, this deep longing to be released from the pain of self-absorption and all its offspring of anxiety and judgment and comparison. But we hear the equally desperate voice of self-belief that's saying, look at me, you know, look at me, you know, love me, I'm here, you know. <laughs> I'm here, I'm still here, look at me. <laughs> you know, I remember when, when my children were small, that was one of their mantras all the time. Look at me, look at me, look at me, you know, this, this, this kind of, you know, but we don't grow out, grow it, you know, we just get more subtle, you know. <laughs> look at me. Uh. I'm here, I'm here. And we often have a very strange reluctance to let go of that sense, you know. It's a little bit like the story of, you know, this guy who gets chased by this tiger, you know. It's only one way to go, to not be eaten by the tiger. He jumps over the cliff, you know, hangs onto a branch. He's clinging there by his fingernails, you know, cliffs below him, the tiger dribbling above him, you know, not knowing what to do. So he shouts out to the heavens, you know, help, somebody help me, you know. And much to his surprise, his voice booms out, you know, I'm here. And, and, and the man says, you know, God, is that you? Is that you? I have to put on my God voice here. Yes, it's me. <laughs> what do you need? And the man says, help me, save me, help me, save me. And, and the voice comes and says, I will help you and save you. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And the voice booms out, let go. And, and the man says, anybody else there? <laughs> so what do we do with all of this, you know? We don't turn away, we don't pretend, we don't condemn. We simply really calm our hearts and look a little bit more deeply. And we use the same investigative and analytical skills that we applied the to the chair to ourselves. So in, in, in the Buddhist discourse on anatta, this first discourse on, 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 on anatta, the Buddha encouraged first to investigate the body. If 
the body was me, myself, belonged to me. If the body had an independent self-existence, if the body was not entwined with countless other conditions, guess what? Basically, we could have the body we always wanted. Most of us would choose to have a body that had no pain, you know, that never aged, was, wasn't mortal, never got ill, that looked the way we wanted it to look. We could, have, we could choose to have the body we, we wanted, and we all know this is simply not an option. Our body, like all things that are born, is born and so of and subject to conditions. Once you were just a twinkle in your parents' eye. The body is not under our dominion. It changes in ways sometimes that we want. It doesn't change in ways that, you know, it changes in ways that we don't want. We could be at peace with this, or we could be in a great state of argument. Isn't this also true about feelings? We can't choose that from the menu only to have pleasant feelings. We can't choose not to experience unpleasant, even though we might heroically try. We can't choose to inhabit a landscape only of delight, of bliss, of elation. How about consciousness? How much of this are you choosing? Did you invite today the thoughts, the emotions, the states you experience? Did you decide to have a day of uninterrupted happiness or a day of unrelenting obsession? Probably not. You notice, I mean, we only need to look a little bit closely. We notice everything in ourselves is changing. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is static. If self indeed was independent, quite frankly, it's not doing a very good job. So where did the idea, and it is only an idea, an optical illusion of this is me, mine, who I am, come from? At what point did this fluid, un, uh, this fluid changing, unfolding process become an identity? Two factors at play here. One is ignorance and one is clinging. Now, intellectually, we can accept we are not the pilot in the cockpit. We, we're not controlling, deciding on everything that happens in our mind-body experience. Emotionally, that mean, doesn't mean that we give up hoping that we will or can. Huh? We valiantly keep trying. Anguish, struggle is what is added to the simple truth of every moment because we are arguing with that fluid changing process. Through thought through resistance, through cravings, through wanting, through not wanting. So the Buddha described this suffering as optional, and its end is liberation. So let's take the teaching, no thing has an independent self-existence. We can intellectually accept it. What does it mean as a practice? First, self is not a noun. It is a verb. It is a process that arises and passes. There is a process of selfing. Huh? This is very important for us to see. It is a process of selfing that arises almost like a reflex reaction in the face or in the intimation of pain or injury or loss. But it's a reflex and a process that also arises in the face or the intimation of pleasure, both pain and pleasure. I think it's really important to get a felt sense of selfing, to get a felt sense of it, not an intellectual sense of it but to get a felt sense of selfing. Um, the tightening of your body, huh? the, emer the energy surges, the contractedness of the heart, the contracting of the mind, the tunnel vision 
that starts to happen as we fixate on something. All of this is the process of selfing. The, as we start to move towards something, move away from it, you can feel that felt sense of selfing. And un, uh, underlying it is this background symphony. You know, this is me, this is mine, this belongs to me. The deep sense of contractedness. Now, in times in our wiser moments, we tell ourselves it would be a really good idea to let go of this. Sometimes we even tell ourselves, I have to let go, or I should let go, as if clinging was something I decided on, and as if clinging is something that I do. I can tell you, quite honestly, I have never let go of a single thing in my entire life. I have never done it. I don't have, who is letting go, please, you know? I have never let go of anything. It is a delusion to think I let go, just as it is a kind of condemning statement to say I am clinging. I think this is so crucial because I see people in practice taking upon themselves this exaggerated responsibility that I should let go and then trying to figure out, okay, I want to let go, so why isn't it happening? Why? Because clinging and selfing are two words for the same thing. There's no independent self clinging to something. Clinging and selfing are two words for the same thing. We'll get into this. So I think we, we need to re reframe, reframe our, la our, our language. Now, I would also encourage you to see that there are many, many moments of non-self in your day. Ever notice that? You know, we so highlight the moments of self-absorption, self-preoccupation. We're kind of imagining it is this uninterrupted thing that's happening. It's actually not uninterrupted. And I'd encourage you to notice those moments. You know, perhaps you step outside, see the sun shining on the grass, or the silhouette of a tree against the sky, or the moon in the sky, and, and find yourself being present in the presence of all things, not wanting anything, not planning anything, but a simple, remarkable aliveness. Have you ever found yourself during this retreat sitting or walking and just forgetting that it is you sitting? or that it is you walking. You just forget that it is you doing it. The breath is just breathing itself rather than I'm breathing. And the heart of those moments is aliveness. But you know, sometimes it's really ordinary. Brushing teeth, tying shoelaces, picking up a plate at lunchtime. I really encourage you to notice these moments when there is no clinging. Because when there is no clinging, this sense of selfing is something so quiet. Now, I have to say, there's still this little, you know, background piece that we call the conceit of self, still hanging out there in the back that's saying, you know, but, but really, I'm, 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 now I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> you know, that, that's who I am. No way you're not, you know. Have you ever found yourself faced with a person in very deep distress and found yourself reaching out with a very unhesitating compassion where all boundaries, all sense of self and other simply soften and fall away? You know, those moments are all a taste of emptiness. They are a taste of non-self. They are an intimation of freedom. And I really, those moments when the heart is not gripped by craving and by self-view or view of others, and I so encourage you 
to get a taste of those moments, not just the taste of the moments of contractedness, not just the taste of the moments of self-absorption, but to get a taste of those moments when that is not present. What is the nature of those moments? Now, we have all had plenty of experience of practicing selfing and practicing solidity, but perhaps we can learn the practice of non-selfing, of non-clinging, of emptiness. You know, Leonard Cohen, in one of his songs, he says, ring the bells that can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. You know, so notice the cracks, those moments, you know, between the moments of selfing, between the moments of contractedness. Notice those moments because that's where the light gets in. And those moments are deeply illuminating. Now, emptiness is not a state, but a way a path. Since this during this your day, the, this felt sense of opening and closing, of opening and closing. Sense in your body, mind and heart, the countless times in a single day in the face of sights or sounds or events and people where there's opening, closing. And get a sense how the closing is really the mechanism of selfing and clinging, born of seeing substantiality and independent self-existence in all things. Opening, we might say, is emptiness responding to emptiness. No center of me or mine or belonging to me. Now, does this sense of opening, this quality of opening, does it need to be left to chance? Does it have to be a lucky accident? I think not. Perhaps we can see the process of selfing, of closing, contracting, as suffering, not to be blamed, born of misunderstanding, but as a process that, the process of closing that sets us apart, that isolates and estranges us. Perhaps we can see opening in all the moments in our day as the end of that estrangement and disconnection. And perhaps we can learn, begin to learn, to probe beneath, to question, probe beneath the surface, the views, the likes, the dislikes, and begin to soften in the midst of contractiveness. Now, the practice of emptiness is not to try to annihilate anything at all, not even myself. Rumi once says, being is not what it seems, nor non-being. The world's existence is not in the world. So I said before, before enlightenment, there's a sense of self. After enlightenment, quite frankly, you know, we don't turn into dysfunctional beings. There is, you know, a sense of self, but what has really radically changed is the view. There is no mistaking the appearance to be the reality. There's no longer seeing the substantiality or independence in any sense of self, inwardly or outwardly. We still get up in the morning, breathe, move through our day, but without wrong view without the view of solidity and independent self-existence. And life is then a response, a responsiveness. The great poets of emptiness, Nagarjuna and Shantideva, realized and taught the profound ethical implications of understanding emptiness. You know, when we are locked into self-view, there's tremendous room for ill will, for fear, for craving, no longer locked into that closed world of I and you and us and them, what there is, is compassion. What there is, is compassion. 
And as Shantideva once wrote, just as these arms and legs are seen as being the limbs of a body, why are embodied creatures not seen as the limbs of life? And I'd just like to end with something from Kimpo Rinpoche. It's called Nothing to It. Look inward at your own mind. It seems quite exciting when not examined. But when examined, there's nothing to it. Appearing without being, it is nothing but empty. It cannot be identified saying that's it. It is elusive like mist. Look at whatever may appear in any of the ten directions. No matter how it may appear, the thing in itself, its very nature, is the skylight nature of mind. Beyond the projection and dissolution of thought and concept. Everything has the nature of being empty. When the empty looks at the empty, who is there to look at something empty? If we just have a moment quietly together. Time for a walking period before we sit again at quarter two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.